What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, I'm Sabine Nakim and you're listening to Beyond the Grid. Hi everyone, Happy New Year. I think we can still say that. It's Tom Clarkson here with the second of two very special episodes of Beyond the Grid, presented by Bose QuietComfort 35-2 wireless headphones. It was Michael Schumacher's 50th birthday on January the 3rd. And to celebrate such a landmark, there's been a wealth of content across Formula One's channels dedicated to the seven-time champ. We kicked off Schumacher Week seven days ago with a feature-length conversation with Ross Braun the man who engineered the German maestro throughout those incredible years of domination. This week, we're closing our celebrations with another fabulous guest. The person you're about to hear from is one of the few people to have witnessed the public and private sides of Michael Schumacher, having worked with him first as a journalist, then as his PR, and more recently as his manager. I'm talking about Sabine Kim. She quizzed Michael with a dictaphone when he was winning championships for Benetton, and she worked alongside him when he was dominating F1 at Ferrari, and she continues to manage his business affairs to this day. She's known Michael for a long time, and she knows him better than most. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Sabine, welcome to Beyond the Grid. It's lovely to have you with us on what is a, a very special week, of course, Michael's 50th birthday. And on behalf of all of the listeners, I'd just like to say, keep fighting, Michael. He's in all our thoughts. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I really I really appreciate it. And I'm sure uh, Michael's family and Michael himself appreciate that a lot. It's been incredible, the amount of, of sympathy which, which came to them and which, I don't know if you know that, but in the end, um, the family decided... Uh, since all this sympathy and this good energy came to them, they didn't just want it to keep it, they wanted to send it out back again. So that's why um, we decided to to create that Keep Fighting Foundation, which is really trying to continue Michael's charitable work. And that's what we're trying to do. It's a fantastic thing. Well, look, let's talk about the great man, Sabine. I mean, when did you first meet him and what kind of impression did he make on you? Well, I have to unfortunately say it's quite a while ago. <laughs> it's uh, It's been in uh, the, at the German Grand Prix in 94. Uh, I've been a journalist then and obviously a German journalist. So the German Grand Prix has been a big thing in, in all the uh, print and also TV offices. I've been a writer. So I met him in the Hockenheim uh, in 94. And my first impression, I mean, obviously I had read about him. I have watched him. 
Uh, he'd been present already in the German press, but that was the first year when he was kind of, you know, finally there was a German driver maybe being able to to win the, the Formula One World Championship, which was at that time something unimaginable in Germany. So um, I really remember our, our our chief editor saying, wow, there's this guy, we need to go there now. So I kind of said, let me go. <laughs> and uh, But yeah, like I think everybody else at that time, or a lot of people still, still at the end of his career, I saw him as, um, you know, distant, reserved, cautious. But I always uh, felt that the whole Formula One scenery was extremely interesting to, to describe as a journalist because you had all these different characters. And Michael was clearly one uh, outstanding character. You could see that then already. And Hockenheim was very busy back in those days, wasn't it? Because the, the, the whole stadium section was full and yeah. there was a lot going on, wasn't there? Was he, was he an easy interview for for the german media how did you find when the when the dictaphone was on how 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 was it the funny thing is that i always felt looking back as a journalist i always felt he was easier with the british media actually because i think it's because um, if you're trying to explain something in your own language you would like to be very specific and very nuanced whereas maybe in another language like english was michael's obviously not not michael's native language it, it it comes across more easy because maybe you, you you are not able to go in all these little perfect nuances. So in I always felt that Michael's interviews in English sometimes were even stronger than the ones in Germany because then he he really sometimes tried to be so precise that in the end it didn't really come across. And well, it it was not so easy. I felt uh, I really felt that he, he was you could feel that that he was a very uh, how should I say um, strong character. But um, uh, he was not easy to open, and um, that that was then, and that was later the same, I think. But you have a very interesting perspective on Michael, don't you? Because you've worked on both sides of the divide, if you like, the, the, the journalist that you've just described. But then, was it year 2000, you then go and work for Michael. So how different have you found the, the, the public and the private side of, of Michael? I found it extremely different. I mean, it was really like two personas. And clearly, Michael was always wanted it to have like this. He wanted to be a person public, the racing driver, being able to be uh, followed and watched and whatever f- by everybody. And that was kind of his racing driver personality. And then there was a very strong uh, feeling for privacy and he never wanted to open up. He he also needed that and he had understood that he needed that privacy in order to refresh his batteries because if you are in the center of attention over so many years, Michael has been fighting for the championship more or less onwards from 94 until the end of 2006, which is an incredible line of years. But that really takes a lot of energy away from you. So you really have to make sure that you that you also get it back. And for Michael, he understood, I think, quite early on that he really needed to have that, uh, to, to divide these two lives, kind of. And he did it very consequently, like everything he did. Methodically, I guess. He, was, he struck me as a very methodical person. Is that what he was like to work for? It was extremely like this in working, but very different in, in private life. I mean, he was really a different kind of, of person in private. He was really very easygoing, uh, not, not, that, not that methodically, really um, 
enjoying his life a lot, enjoying having fun a lot, enjoying being with friends and, and doing things which they would really then laugh about afterwards. So a really different persona. Uh, but I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that in order to arrive in Formula One, um, Michael being from, from this, let's say, a, a background that he was from, I mean, he didn't really, they never really had the money and they, he would never have thought that he would ever arrive in Formula One. That was beyond thinking. And he learned from early on from his childhood that he had to deliver. When he's in this car or cart, and then later in this kind of carts he was driving, he really had, had always to deliver in order to still going, you know, to, to, to be able to get a seat and to be able to have a cockpit. And I think that never really got away from him. So what sort of Michael did you find in the year 2000? Because he'd had four really frustrating years with Ferrari, hadn't he? So he'd won the title with Benetton 94, 95, and then six, seven, eight, nine doesn't happen for various reasons. How did he deal with the disappointment of those years? Uh, it was clearly a, a, a big uh, thing, obviously. It was clear that the pressure was extremely high and you could feel that right away. I mean, it was... In a way, I, I felt it was like a very decisive year, and I don't know what have, what would have happened if the championship would not have happened. So um, in two thousand, in two thousand, I, I really had the feeling that I really don't know what happened. You know, if they don't finally make it. So um, he was incredibly hardworking in that year, really not giving any anything to him. You know, he really put in everything. Um, so it was. It was a very demanding job also for me, even being used to be in the Formula One paddock. But obviously, as you say, it was a different side. And there were a lot of things in the background which you usually don't get to see as a journalist. And you only don't see that these drivers are being, the same quest are being asked the same questions really a hundred times over a race weekend. Because as a journalist, you're there maybe one, once or twice. At the, but, you know, there's all the other journalists too. I'm and sure you came up with original questions. You, you were better than that. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, it was obviously there, there was something with, my, with with the interviews I did before that suddenly he wanted me to work for him. Well, well actually, that that's an inter is that an interesting story? Just how how did he approach you, and were you nervous about going to work for the most famous sportsman in Germany, one of the most famous sportsmen in the world? Actually, I was obviously because otherwise I would not have done it, but. Originally, I, I was really, I was, I was loving being a journalist. I really felt, um, I was really uh, feeling that I was in, a, in an extremely interesting environment. I not, did not only cover Formula One, I have covered Olympics and other stuff, and I loved it. So at the beginning, I, I was contacted by, by Michael's then manager, Willy, Willy Weber, who kind of, because he didn't want to steer up a, a story, approached me of asking me if I wanted to take this, the job for Ralph. Funnily enough, and uh, and I clearly said no, I don't want to. <laughs> Just for our listeners, that's brother Ralph, who at the time was at Williams, wasn't he? Yeah, I, yeah. I don't even remember exactly. Yeah, but and so I, I clearly and blankly said no. I'm, I'm very nice, big honor being asked, but I, I'm not interested. And then Willie was kind of saying, uh, uh, you cannot only just say no, you have to, I mean, maybe you have to think about it. And I said, um, no, I, I'm really, I'm happy where I am and I love uh, covering all that stuff. So um, eventually when he felt that I was really saying no and kind of walk, wanting to walk away, he said, 
he he went into explaining more and at some point I said wait a minute what are you explaining me that doesn't fit to this English environment where Ralph is it would really rather fit into this Italian environment are we speaking about Ralph or Michael because if you ask me about Michael then the answer is not immediately uh, no then I then I'm happy to think about it because Obviously, as you say, he has been uh, a big star at that time already. And as a journalist, you always want to be and look behind the scenes and you always want to understand what's really going on. So obviously, there was a big curiosity, frankly, in me to, to really be able to see that. And that's why it took me long because it, I really didn't have never thought about doing the other side. But um, eventually, exactly that curiosity uh, took over. So what was it like being, you arrived at the perfect time in terms of, of course, they win the championship in T, exactly. <laughs> uh, 2000, 2001, two, three. What was it like just being on that, that, that juggernaut of success with Ferrari? It was really an incredible journey. You can't really say that differently. And in it's memories and moments nobody can ever take away from me. And um, I really, really remember when Michael um, won eventually in Suzuka, which, I mean, I've never imagined and such an explosion of emotions. It was really like an explosion. From him? From No, from, from the team, from the whole team. He was really crossing the finish line and really in the back of the garage, people broke down in tears. And when I saw that, that moment, I think only then I really understood what it meant to them because they had tried for so long and for so many years. And there were, so, there were some, like, mechanics and who had been around for I don't know 25 years and they were literally really crying in tears and and then but ashamed that they were crying so they were trying to hide and it was I've never seen something so touching I have to say and so that was the moment when I really thought wow you know that 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 moment is even bigger than I had even expected it to be and it was uh, it clearly um, it's it will always be in my heart obviously to see those people was it that race where he there was that very emotional radio message yes. Corinna Corinna we give Corinna a kiss from me yeah, yeah yeah that was yeah it was an extremely emotional moment for everybody involved did it elevate Michael in terms of the demands on his time did it elevate him to a different sphere of demand and and position within the world of sport do you think i think so yes i mean i i also think that he immensely grew in 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 the years that he that he um was driving formula one having this success and continuing to have that success he he developed massively also as a person obviously also being then married and having children that all helps you grow obviously but also being having that uh, position within the team and then also within the sport and then also within the grades of any kind of sport in the world that gave us um, a gravitas, which which I think um, he poured out in a way um, over the years. Did he relax when he got that first championship with Ferrari? Was it noticeable? No, he did not relax. <laughs> he did but relax. Was, th was that Michael Schumacher? He couldn't relax. In, yeah, in, no, in... no, he could actually, but but it, as I said before, he he was really relaxed. He was really relaxed. You would. For example, if you had watched him in his private environment, you would for sure noticed, um, being you, Tom, that he was much, uh, let's say, um, slower with everything he did. Because in Formula One, everything was ha needed to be so quick and boom, boom. And we had like schedules 
which was sometimes split down to two minutes, you know. But then in his private environment, it was not like this. He was really relaxed. But when it was when it came to like the the, the Formula One and the commitment and and the team and the driving and 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 the delivery. Uh, then he was really never relaxed. Was there one thing he had in his private life that helped him to relax? I've heard Mika Hakkinen, for example, talk about he had a tortoise and the tortoise walks so slowly that it sort of, he'd get home from a race weekend and he'd see this tortoise walking slowly and everything would just slow down. Was there, did Michael have something like that in his life? Michael clearly had his family. I mean, uh, uh, Corinna, I mean, they were really, they, they, are, they were such a perfect couple and they are still a perfect couple, if, if you ask me. And um, when, when, he, when he went home and the kids were coming, you know, it was, Formula One was far away. And I, as I said before, he needed that, uh, that, that privacy, kept private in order to take the energy out of it. Um, but that was always, for people like looking at it from the outside, like friends or people like me, it was so obvious. His family is, is, has always been his kind of uh, charger in a way. And was he very competitive in terms of did he have to win everything even at home playing tennis with the family or yeah i'd say yes, was yes, he like that yes yes everything yes. he was be. clearly a competitive person yes yeah and he had horses didn't he well he corinna obviously has a lot of horses and then already had then had horses and loves them and loves raining the sport that she does um but michael was not so much into that but because corinna was so much into it and he was uh, always been so close to corinna he kind of shared that because um, he was always saying, I remember when he was the first time when he uh, with Ferrari when he when he retired, he said, you know, Corinna has dedicated so much time to my passion. I want to give back to her and now dedicate my time to her passion, and that's what he did. So you mentioned his retirement from Ferrari there, end of two thousand and six. I remember that Brazilian Grand Prix, last race of that year. He went from, he got a puncher on the opening lap, didn't he? And he went from 19th to 4th, one of his best races, actually. Um, how, how difficult was it for him to step away from Ferrari, the team that he'd had so much success with? Well, it was clearly difficult because, I mean, it was really his passion. And, and yeah, as you say, he had so much success. But even more, it was such a close group of, of friends, in a way, that, that that team was built into such a close uh, relationship everybody ha had been so close you know so it was really very difficult but then at that time uh, because um, at that time especially not maybe not in, not anymore in 2006 but the years before there was always racing testing racing testing and Michael he did a lot of testing because he, he wanted to make sure and at some point also the tires were a little bit maybe not the best or not, not the better ones. So um, he did a lot of testing and that obviously was very draining. And in 2006, he already felt that a lot. I mean, the, the 2006 season, even if it would have been nearly another world championship uh, season, was very um, difficult for his, um, for his physical um, condition. He had uh, really sometimes neck problems and we didn't want anybody to understand that, obviously, because it would have obviously um, influenced the, the, the championship. Um, but uh, it was clearly like this. So at that point, it was time for him to go. 7-8-9, he, he was away from Formula One. I think he did a bit with Ferrari, didn't he, sort of off and on in an ambassadorial role. But did you see a very different Michael in those three years? 
uh, clearly. I mean, he was really off. And and I really remember uh, kind of in going into this 2007 year, he really looked at me and said, you know, don't even call me for the next half year. You know, I'm not available for anything. And um, and I could even understand it. You know, Did he mean that? Yeah, he, he clearly meant that. He mm. was... He wanted to enjoy the time with his family and he really wanted to enjoy the things uh, he always wanted to do and still did, but even wanted to do them uh, even more often. And but, but really clearly he wanted to spend time with his family and, and, and with his friends. And he didn't, he didn't really have any desire to come back. Actually, he was really happy with his retirement. So it was more down to Ross than kind of to kind of putting the fire again, or maybe even to the the test he did in order to replace Philippe when he had this problem um, with, with in the 2009. Neck. Was that the neck problem? That's no, that Philippe had that... Um, oh, the, the, the crash in Hungary. But, yeah. but, no, uh, the, the thing which came to his helmet, I don't know the word in... Oh, the in spring, English. was it? Yeah, the, exactly, yeah. a spring. So um, he couldn't drive, so then Michael was asked to drive, and that was kind of, he, at that point, he felt, you know, he was kind of, wow. And then he did it. He he could not do it then because of his neck, but he did that test and he felt he saw that it. I mean, even of course he had this neck problem, so he could not have driven it then, but he felt that he could still drive. So um, that that's what reignited the fire. Was I it? think yes. So when he said to you, Sabine, I'm going to go back full time with Mercedes. How much of a sh- surprise was it for you? It was a full surprise because we had like. We had several discussions then. It was always very clear that Michael did not have desire to come back. And then I remember very clearly that he called me and he said, you know what, Sabine, I just had a chat with Ross. And um, can you make me some pros and cons maybe if I should come back or not? And I said, oh, I think, Michael, there's no need to do that because I can hear from your voice that you already decided. And he said, no, 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 I'm not. I mean, I need you. Maybe maybe you can. And I said, well, it makes no sense. I, I feel that you are decided. I mean, you, you, can, you could really feel it immediately. So I really, I was totally surprised. By that stage, you've been working with him for 10 years. So did he rely quite heavily on you just on the big decisions as well as the detail stuff? Well, by th- by then, I mean, until then, the, the, he had a, a manager, Willy Weber, who was obviously having a big role in in putting him into Formula One and so on, and he was not really discussing the big dis- the decisions with me. Obviously, we were working very close, and um, Michael loved to hear uh, several. If he wanted to do a big decision, he wanted to hear several as- aspects, so he would discuss it with Willy. He would also always discuss it with Corinna and then he would always discuss it also with me but it was not like me giving him uh, the advice in, in terms of that he then followed it, he he tried to collect um, various aspects when it really came to to big decisions and then he would try and kind of you know make his mind how frustrated did he get during those three years with Mercedes what did he, he had that podium in Valencia, didn't he? he had the pole position in Monaco, but of course there yeah, was the that penalty. Was obviously, oh. Yeah, that was really a shame because that could have been mm. a very, that could have been a lot of nice emotions again. Actually, the thing is that very, very quickly it became very clear that it would not turn out the way the, that he had hoped for because um, in the first year, I think there was a lot of, um, the resources were not really there and there was not really it was clear that they were not they would not be given as well so 
um, that was obviously a little bit disappointing. But then at some point, it was also, well, we have to cope with it and have to go on. And I think Michael fought a lot for to convince the right people to really give more money into it and really make it a make it a, a big team, you know, again. Because so you think Michael sort of laid the foundations of the Mercedes to success me, I that mean, we're seeing I may, be, I may be not neutral, but I think yeah. yes, because he, I think he really made it very clear that if you have, if you want to do it, you have to do it really full throttle, you know, and mm. not at the mm. beginning, it was a bit undecided kind of, we came back, but but not really, you know, and mm. they, they were kind of operating a little bit as as a middle team and, and not really like as a top team. And and I think the way that Michael kind of addressed this to 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 some people helped help them to really, you know, see that it makes no sense to do it like this. And I mean, I think already in his last year, you could see that the things were coming and coming. And it was quite obvious also to him that if he had stayed another year and uh, that 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 would already be um, a much better year for, for him well, as well. Because already in the last, his last year, which was 2012, he was he was having the time. I mean, he was coming, he was coming up, but um, at that time he just didn't. We discussed it actually. And I said, maybe you stay another year then, you know, and he said, no, but I'm, I'm not having it. I don't, I don't want to spend so much time away from my, from my family. And that was actually the, the reason why then knowing he couldn't maybe have a better record at the end if he stayed another year, he just uh, decided against it. Was he as obsessive about the, the fitness aspects of it and everything else that comes with being a good driver? Was he as obsessed with it in the Mercedes years as he was at Ferrari? I think the biggest difference between these two years, if you if you may compare them, is that in the three years that he had been away from the track uh, after his first retirement, he had, under, because he did a lot of things he really wanted to do, and he had understood in the three years that he's able to let loose and that, but still get the focus on. Whereas before, he never allowed himself to let loose because he was afraid that he would not be have the focus on the same way like before. And and he always had, as I said, he always had that need to deliver. And um, in these three years, he understood he can still deliver even if I let go. So he he enjoyed these three Mercedes years on another, on a more personal level. You know, he he um, he, he very 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 quickly understood that it would not come out the way he would have wanted, and really tried to soak other things in. You know, soak. This, uh, he, he was very open in the discussions and he liked that way and he, he then just enjoyed his time, you know, driving and discussing with the team, trying to work with the engineers, with the mechanics, things he always loved. But before he could not have uh, done them. So so it was a different pressure, obviously. The pressure was totally different. Now, are these, I think a lot of racing drivers are mad. And I've got a little Michael story. I never. I went and did a skydive in Dubai a tandem skydive. Actually, I was jumping with Timo Glock and uh, we were just going towards the plane and Michael is there. Didn't didn't know he was going to be there. He was there. He came up in the same plane load as us. Brilliant at, at, at doing the skydive thing. He was on his own, jumped out and then we all got back down to the bottom. He dropped his parachute and went straight back up again. I mean, he was an obsessive character. Is that is that 
fair because he just he was going up and down all day as far as he was really up and down i remember that a lot and i think timo's the 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 fact that timo was skydiving was because of michael i think it was yeah (laughs) and we all had to skydive i mean i even me i was skydiving in dubai because i mean he was kind of influencing and and and, uh, because he was so much enjoying it and the the nice thing about michael it's always been that he loved to see other people having fun. So he loved to have fun, but he also loved to share that with other people. And he really, that was something I really always lo- liked on him so much, even then in these very tense times that, I mean, he still, he never forgot about the other people having fun too. So, and it's true, maybe to a certain way, you can say that's, that's obsessive. Uh, clearly with skydiving, if he, if he liked something really, yeah, that was, I mean, that, he was really like, he could never stop. It was the same with karting, you know. He was like, you had the feeling. Or like when he was testing with Ferrari, I remember Friday evenings when mechanics were, would come up to me and say, how long will he still drive? <laughs> and I was, I don't know, it looks like another day, you know, it, when maybe the, the test was originally scheduled until Friday only. Mm. And at the, at the first years, you could still go on. So, and Michael was always going on because he could, you know, when he had the feeling that you can still do more, he always did it. Now, Rob Smedley um, told me on this podcast actually a few weeks ago that Michael was a brilliant team person. Win or lose, he would go around and shake the hand of every mechanic, not just on his car, but every mechanic, every engineer, even on Rubens's car or Eddie Irvine's car, whoever it was. Um, what are your experiences of the sort of human side of, of Michael? Absolutely, I I agree with Rob. I mean, he and I know that he did that, and but he also really um he 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 genuinely enjoyed the time with the team and also with the mechanics because he I think if Michael would not have been a Formula One driver, he would have probably been a mechanic or whatever. He he would have had a job in some kind of driving slash racing slash mechanic environment he loved that stuff and so he always he he never thought he's something different or special uh, compared to the mechanics and that's what what the mechanics loved on him uh, they always felt like he's genuinely interested in in what they do but also who they are so he was very often having chats with them about their families and and um, and it was always a big thing we had in uh, we had a big list of of birthdays he wanted to have the birthday of everybody and we needed to really give give christmas wishes and presents to everybody and uh, it was always coming up christmas he would always you know in length uh, think about what present to give to who that was something which was really important to him because he felt like um he knew that he was demanding um but he felt like at least he wanted to also reward them in a way. And um, he's, Michael has always been a very warm person, obviously, even in, in, in this racing environment. When, but obviously not. he didn't want to, that to be seen to the outside because he felt that would kind of take away some, something of the competitiveness, at least in the outer perception. So um, as I said, he, he very, very clearly divided those two personas. And he also obviously, um, you know, that sport and at that level is also a lot of mind games and stuff. So he obviously wanted to come across as confident and strong and athletic. And, and that's, that's also what is Michael as well. You know, he, he's a very athletic 
proud person. So so he wanted to that to become across to to come across. He absolutely nailed that confident persona, didn't he? And and you know you talk to someone like Damon Hill, and I think he will say yes, Michael was exactly what you've just described. But was he as confident in real real life, or did no, he have I, the same insecurities as the rest of us? I think he maybe I'm I'm not sure if he had the same insecurities, but he clearly has questioned himself all the, all the time. And to me, that's one of the secrets of his success. He would never say or approach anything saying, I can do it anyway, because I've proved it a lot. Uh, and I proved it all the time. And I can do it. He would always kind of doubt himself and, and look into himself if maybe if, if, the, if it's still there. And to me, that's one of the real things, the real um, points which made him so strong. And once he said to me, the funny thing is when I go into something, I always have the feeling, uh, some somewhere of a negative feeling. I'm not sure if I can really do it. I have to prepare 100%. And then when I do it, suddenly there comes this confidence while I do it. And, and that kind of, t- you know, carries me away. And that's probably in a way that... Yeah, that's that's probably how how he did it. But he certainly was uh, questioning himself a lot, and clearly also defining that as something he needed to improve. Did he ever talk to you about rivals, other drivers on the grid, other people he'd raced against? Did he ever talk about the people he really respected or didn't respect, or just did you ever did he ever talk much about rivals? Or was it more about the car? No, it was really more. Um, we talk a lot, a lot about the team and 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 the, like the 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 environment we were we were um, working in together. He didn't speak so much about Raya. Of course, he did that as well. But um, no, he he did not kind of prepare to a race in um, looking at the other people. He really needed to know that he is prepared the best way and then the rest was kind of okay then let's see who's who's bringing it on on the track kind of so um in his whole perform uh, preparation to something he was trying to even to, to really not look so much to the even if he did that obviously mm. he knew exactly what mm. they would uh, go to but he, he i think he didn't let them go in, into his mind so sort of in conclusion, Sabine, how do you feel Michael changed Formula One? I think that um, he, he's been given, uh, for me, I think Formula One is really the, the pinnacle of motorsport. It has to be, it is the, the, the playing field of, of, the, of kind, kind of the gladiators of, of our modern times. And I think Michael clearly has been the leading gladiator for, for so many years. And I think obviously he's given he's given two things to the sport. One is that really that's, that's he was the star, and everything was kind of centered around him. You know, he was either the story if he had lost a race, or he was the story if he had won it. And at the same time, uh, I think a lot of people understood that there was also the second part of Michael. And clearly, Michael didn't really want didn't want them to to be so close to this other persona. And that was something which also was really interesting for the people. I think he really brought Formula One to a to a level that um, it was coming into the living rooms of average people, whereas before, at least that's the case in Germany, and uh, whereas before that was kind of seen as 
as a playing field of some people who are, you know, a little bit crazy and, and, and it's a cool it's a cool sport, but you cannot really take it serious. And Michael kind of brought that uh, that that thinking into these people there. So the, he brought the sport into their living rooms. If 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 I'm clear here, no, no, I you're, don't you're think I am. No, no, Sabine, you are clear. <laughs> but it's I think it's fascinating that Germany fell in love with Michael in a way, really, that they haven't fallen in love with any other German driver since. Why do you think? What was it that he had that these other guys haven't? I think there's two two aspects of it. One is that I don't know if that's the case also for other countries, but I think in Germany that's really the case. I think the first one who whoever achieves something really outstanding is always loved in a way more or has a bigger impact. And the other ones are just kind of the next ones. And and Michael clearly has been the first one. And maybe Stefan Belov, or, uh, who was a really a great driver too, but unfortunately, you know, he couldn't show that. Maybe he would have been the first one. It would have all been very different. But Michael clearly was the first one. And uh, it was really, as I said, in my first year, it was kind of, Wow, there was this astonishment around. Wow, there is a German driver being able to be world champion. Well, we have to we have to watch now, you know. Yeah. And the second thing is also that Michael really came from a very average environment, and I think a lot of people could just really relate to him. You know, they just they they he was not the son of of a, maybe of also of a rich family or something. He really had worked his way up very intensely, and he had a lot to work to to be able to. Um, arrive where he arrived and achieve what he achieved and also this I think that the people li like that so he was one of them man you know? of the people yes exactly yeah um, this might sound a strange question but was he lonely and the reason I'm asking that is um, Fernando Alonso obviously retired uh, at the end of 2018 and one of the reasons he cited for retiring is that he didn't have many friends because his his whole life really since he was 18 had been so focused on formula one and then the moment you become successful in formula one you're put on a pedestal that makes you quite inaccessible to other people because you're famous and as a result he said i don't have many friends and I, it is actually really lonely being up there do you, do you think michael would relate to that situation or did he have a great no clearly not in my view no okay i i, I as i said i mean he really had that family i mean Corinna and the kids and and um, they've been together since really young. So I, I I think from family wise he was not at all. I mean he really was, and still is very close with his family. So um, that is the one thing. And the thing the second thing is that Michael managed, and I really think that's a very nice um, thing to say. He managed to have um, friends from his childhood until now. So um, there is. People like Peter Kaiser, for example, who now follows Mick, his son, everywhere. He's one of Michael's closest friends, more or less from karting days in Kerpen, where everything started. And he had some other people, and still has, who always... That, that's the nice thing as well, because they have always been around and they've also told him, hey, 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 come down, you know. You may be a star, but you're, you're still from Kerpen, so shut up and have a drink and whatever so and that was nice he, he enjoyed that a lot and he knew how how precious that was mm. 
and he kept that. So he he has a bunch of close and very good friends. And, and are, are any of those friends racing drivers, the sort of Jean Alessis of these world? Oh, Jean Alessis is obviously a, um, a friend of his. But I mean, these friends I'm speaking now as really okay. they're coming from Cap and from the car track in Germany where he grew up mm. and he that, that was really like one being his former mechanic and, and you know, so really um, childhood friends, mm. you know, mm. and that's something which I think not a lot of people can say. And that was always uh, that was always very important to Michael. And that's why I would never say he was or is lonely. Mm-hmm. So legacy. Let's just talk about Michael's legacy. What What do you think that is in terms in a formula one context well i think he's been he's been the epitome of the of the sport i mean he's mm. he's um defined the way that people would nowadays say a formula one driver needs to be i mean he's he's defined the uh, it's a the driving the, the the driving itself i mean on the track when you when you're kind of alone then the, for me the definition of how you work with a team and how how important it is to really be be inside and really understand everything in order to run, then give the right direction or, or find the right questions, which is also very, and, and even more, the, obviously, mm. then find the right answers to those questions. Mm. Um, fitness level, I also think that Michael clearly defined that. If you look at these young drivers, they're all super fit, and, and um, I think he defined... Um, the role of uh, or the role model of a modern Formula One driver. How obsessed with fitness was he? I mean, we hear that he was super fit, but I mean, was he in the gym the whole time? A bit like Ronaldo, the football player, is apparently. He was clearly in the gym every day. I mean, not obviously not all the time, but he would he would train every day, and he was. I'm. Yeah, I don't know if you call that obsessed, but he also liked it. You know, I mean, of course, sometimes the the, the neck machine he hated it sometimes because that's mm. purely and really um, boring. Mm. Um, but he liked a lot of other sports, so he 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 loved that. And but he was clearly, it was daily routine, and for him, really important. But also, I think also important in terms of. Um, Still, the Formula One driving um, at that time when you had to drive so much was also really draining, you know, for the body. That is fantastic, Sabine. Thank you very... Sabine, that was a lovely chat. What fabulous insights from Sabine. The take-home message for me is that while Michael might have come across as an automaton when he was racing, there was always a caring and conscientious side to him that we, the fans, didn't always get to see when he was in his pomp. Thank you, Sabine, for being so open. That was a fascinating chat. And keep fighting, Michael. All our thoughts are with you. Well, that concludes our Schumacher specials. And Beyond the Grid is now taking a few weeks holiday before coming back ahead of the new season with more conversations, more insight, more intrigue from the great and the good of Formula One. Please remember that you can contact us at any time using the F1 Beyond the Grid hashtag or you can tweet me at Tom Clarkson F1. We loved hearing all your feedback on the Ross Braun episode and we're delighted that so many of you enjoyed it. And don't forget, if you're new to the show, there's the whole back catalogue to enjoy. What are you waiting for? For now, though, thanks for tuning in. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.